Welcome to the Crosswalk Church Podcast, Phoenix, Arizona. Romans 3, 11 to 15, and actually I, I didn't put the whole passage here. You're going to notice that we're also going to read from chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, so you might want to write that in. Will you read along with me? Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So I'm really excited to get started with this new series where we're going to be studying God's law. Really what God's law is, is just uh, simply a revelation of what his holy will is for us and in our lives. And when we learn to know God's law, we begin to understand and put it into practice in our lives. It's, it's amazing the blessings that can come our way. And I want to start this series uh, by playing a little video for you just to get our wheels turning a little bit. So Scott, will you uh, play that video for us? So do you have them? Regrets? Are there things in your life that you look back on and you say, boy, I really wish that I had not done that? Are there things that you look back on in your life and you, uh, and you say, if I had to do it all over again, I would certainly do it differently this time around? You know, occasionally I, I ask people what their regrets are, sometimes in counseling, and sometimes I'm, I'm pretty amazed to hear the answer, Pastor, I have no regrets in my life. And I, I think to myself, really? Really, you, you feel like you've gone through your entire life and you've never hurt anyone else. You've never hurt them to the point where if you were in their shoes, you would just be in horrible pain. Really, there's nothing in your life that you'd go back and change if you could do it over again. It's, it's very hard for me to believe a person is not in denial when they come and they say, and you've probably heard people say this to you too. You may have friends who have said to you, no, I have no regrets in this life. So what do we do about regrets? We have them. Is, there, is it possible that, that we can somehow lessen our regrets in life and do something about it, really clean those up and make life so much better and so much easier? What do we do about all of that? Well, that's what we want to talk about today. We go through our message and we look at the purpose of God's law from Romans chapter 3. And it's amazing to me to think that God really does give us a way in which we can lessen, even eliminate regrets from our lives. I want to talk this morning about what causes regrets. Do you know what that is? Pull out your crosswalk notes. I've got something I want you to write down there. There's a disease in our world, a disease that causes regrets. And it's a disease that's that's harsher than cancer. It's more widespread than heart disease. It's more epidemic than the AIDS epidemic. 
And that disease is the disease of me. It's the disease in which I think that everything in the world revolves around me, that I'm the center of the universe, that I and my two best friends, me and myself, are the most important things that that there is. And we're all affected, we're all inflicted with that disease of me. And the Bible, the Bible has a name for it, in fact. And I put a passage for you there, Psalm 36, 2. Look at what it says. For in his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. The disease of me, the Bible tells us, is nothing more than self-flattery. It's nothing more, really, than sin. Selfishness, self-centeredness is really what is at the heart of everything the Bible calls sin. And so, before we dig deeper and, and start to talk about the purpose of God's law this morning... I want to talk about a quick definition of what God's law is, because as we talk about God's law, we're going to be dealing with regrets. We're going to be dealing with the issue of the disease of me and self-flattery and ultimately sin. But let's talk about God's law and let's define exactly what we mean when we, we, because for 10 weeks now, we're going to be talking about this concept of God's law. Well, put simply, God's law is wherever the Bible talks to us about what God wants us to do or what he wants us not to do. It's, it's really nothing more than God's verbalization, God's revelation of what his holiness is all about, what, what his will for our life is so that we can be blessed. And so he's going to talk to us as we go through one of the most important summaries of God's law, the Ten Commandments. And he's going to say, this is my will for you. This is what I want you to do. This is what I want you not to do in your life. As we dig into God's law, we're going to also understand that a part of God's law is everywhere where he talks about the consequences of our sin. And where he, as a holy God, says, I'm a just God. And I want you to know that where there's sin, on the other side of it, there's going to be penalty. There's going to be punishment. So in a wider sense, we can say God's law is not only what he tells us to do and what not to do, but in addition, all of God's revelation of his justice, how sin over here is going to result in payment, penalty, punishment over here. So as we talk about that, the very first thing the Apostle Paul does is he ensures us that God loves us enough that he doesn't want us to believe myths about his law. I want you to go back and take a look at that uh, Romans chapter 3 passage that's right at the top of your notes. And look at verse 20. Look at what it says there. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. You know why he says no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law? It's an important phrase. Because he's dealing directly with one of the most prevalent myths that's out there about why God reveals the law to us, why he gave the commandments to us in the first place. And that myth, the first myth is I can use God's law to win God's love. 
We're kind of born almost innately with the belief that if, on the one hand, I do something wrong, and I know that 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 wrong, that sin that I've committed, that selfishness that I've had, creates a hole, a chasm between God and us. It creates a gap in our relationship. It separates us from God. And the natural response of us is to say, how can I bridge that gap? What can I do to get back to having God's love for me? It's what we do in most of our relationships, right? You, you offend your wife. What do you do? You go out and you buy her chocolate and flowers and you go back and you give her a little offering there, some good thing, or you go home and you wash the dishes and tidy up and vacuum. And what's the first question out of your wife's mouth? Okay, what'd you do? Right? So we know this. And this is also the attitude that we take with God sometimes is I can, if I obey those commandments, if I obey God's laws, I can win his love. Here's the second myth. Well, first of all, before we go to the second myth, look at, look at the passage that I put in there to, uh, to, to get rid of that myth. Notice what it says in 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we love God. It's not about our loving God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know what that passage is telling you? God's law is not reactive. Or God's love is not reactive. In other words, God's love is always there. It's unconditional. It's always there, and it is proactive, always reaching out to you. And that's why John says, this is what love is about. It's not that God waits for you to do something good, and then he loves you. He is love, and he always loves us. Second myth. Many people believe that they can use God's law to eradicate sin. Again, very natural response. You've heard it said. You probably have even said it yourself. Maybe your kids are doing something wrong. And, and the natural response to think in your mind is, you know what? I just got to lay the smack down here. We got to get things really clear. I got to have more rules. Got to make more laws. Got to make sure that Everything is understood, and that's where you get the idea that more strictness, more laws, more rules, more legalities are going to clean up lives and eradicate sin. Take a look at this passage that I put down for you. You know what's interesting? Actually, the law does the very opposite of what you're thinking it's going to do. Take a look. But sin... Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Notice what he says there. If you get, if you get the law and you get it separated from life, sin will actually die. It's actually starving sin of the law that creates the death of sin, And that's why the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is so important. That good news that says God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know why it works that way? Why sin actually provokes, or why the law actually provokes more sin? Because inside each and every one of us, we have a sinful nature. And you put the law together with the sinful nature and it creates this very explosive chemistry. 
our sinful nature, the chemistry between our sinful nature and the law is twisted. And so instead of rejoicing and saying, God, you know, how can I please you? I love to do that. I want to thank you with uh, my whole being, my whole life. Our sinful nature twists that and says, you want to make rules? God, you want to you lay down some laws for my life? You want to tell me how I want to live? Well, I'll show you. You draw a line in the sand, God, and watch me step over it. There's a natural rebelliousness in all of us because of our sinful nature. And when that sinful nature meets God's law, it actually provokes people to sin more, not less. Third myth. Third myth is I can use God's law to gain spiritual life. Have you ever noticed our human love for ritual? And our, and our human love sometimes to just have laws. And there's, there's whole religions built around the thought that if I can just get myself off separate and live a life that's just constant ritual and prayer and following rules and laws, I can climb a ladder to a higher spiritual life. It's the whole background, even in Christianity, of what's known as the monastic movement. Get myself off away from, from the world and everything and just keep following more and more rules and rituals until I reach a higher level of spiritual life. Sometimes even Christians in churches today believe that. They're, they're out there in the world trying to just live a life bound by rules and laws. But look at what the Bible says about that. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter, that is the law, kills, but the spirit gives life. If you've ever been around a person that is constantly about rules and laws, you know what it means when the Bible says the letter kills, right? Have you ever felt just the spirit and the life drained out of you by constant contact with someone who is just one rule after another, after another, after another? Do you know that they did a, a study a number of years ago, young people in juvenile detention? And the interesting study showed that it was about a 50-50 split 50% of those juvenile delinquents came from homes that were overly permissive. And 50% of those young people came from homes that were way overly strict. They had had the, their, their spirit just drained from them by parents that constantly made and enforced rules and laws all the time. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So I want, you to, I want you to just know that as we talk about the purpose of God's law, there are some myths that we've got we've to get out of our head. And these three myths are probably the three top myths about what God's law, what his commandments can do for you. You cannot use the commandments to win God's love. You cannot use God's law to eradicate sin. And you cannot use God's law to gain spiritual life. Notice what it says here. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. A new covenant. There's a new way to find love from God, to eradicate sin from your life, and to gain spiritual life. 
a new agreement with God. So here's our first point. God loves me enough to confront my faulty perception of his law and what it can do. He loves me enough to wipe out all the myths that there are. So let's now dig in into why did God give us his law? If it's not for any of those three reasons, why is it that God gave the commandments? If, if the commandments, ironically, can't bring us any closer to God, can't win God's love, why should I pay attention to them? Well, there's two important things that we have to know about God's law, and they're, they're contained in the title. The law of God is God's mirror for you, and it's God's compass for you. And we're going to talk about God's mirror first of all. Notice what it says in 1 John 1, 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. One of the reasons why we're doing this confession of sins throughout this series in a new way is so that we take a moment each and every week and claim our sin. Come before God and just be open and transparent and honest with God and with ourselves and with one another that we cannot claim to be without sin. As we said together earlier, whether it's our thoughts, our words, or our actions, we fall short. We miss the mark with God and what he's claimed. And the very first thing God wants is a humble heart. A humble heart that's just willing to recognize that I've got a problem. Now, most of us know this because there's this thing called the conscience. And the conscience is to our spirit sort of what our central nervous system is to our body. You know what the central nervous system does when you get an injury. I've been experiencing this uh, to to a really neat degree lately. I have something going on with my, uh, with my back, my cervical spine. And there has just been throbbing pain from my neck down to the, to the tips of my fingers in the last three or four weeks. And the temptation is, when I'm feeling pain, what can I do to get rid of this pain? What doctor can I go to? What chiropractor can I see? Uh, can, I, can I go and, uh, and, and, and get some sort of new Chinese therapy? I don't care. Help me get rid of this pain. Pain is not fun. It's not easy. None of us really likes pain. But do you know how helpful pain is? See, what the pain forced me to do was go figure out what is the problem causing the pain. And they have this neat thing nowadays, you all know about it, an MRI. And that machine, you sit in it for 30 minutes, and it takes a picture of what's going on in your spine, and it can tell you exactly what the problem is. A few days after I had my MRI, the doctor called me, and he said, you know what, there's, there's multiple issues. You got this, you got this, you got this, and I've got a very clear picture of what's going on now. And gave me a reference for a surgeon. I didn't like the pain. I wish that I didn't have to face it. But the pain is so important, 
so that I can go and get a picture of what's going on. And this is exactly what God's law does for us. It's why I call it a mirror. Because when there's a problem, we better take a look, an honest, hard, sincere look at what the problem is so that we can get it fixed. And God's law does some pretty important things for us. If, if you don't like MRI and you're more of a techie, if you don't like mirror, then, then think of it as an MRI. And look at what it says here. Romans chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. And then this phrase, and I want you to circle this word, so that every mouth may be silenced. Will you circle that word? When I sin, you know what my first response is? Make an excuse. When I fall short of what God wants me to do, my, my almost automated response as a human being is to do exactly what Adam and Eve did when they were in the Garden of Eden, right? Can I figure out some reason? Can I find someone to point to? And, and can I rationalize? And isn't that word interesting? Rationalize? I like that. Break that up. You know what rationalizing is? It's telling rational, reasonable lies to yourself. Can I rationalize what I've done? Can I minimize? Everyone does it. I'll say to myself, it's, it's really not that bad. It's certainly not as bad as what my buddy so-and-so did. And I will find a way to try to explain my sin away. God's law says, no. When you stand openly, transparently before my law, and your heart is humbled, the first effect is that you are silenced. The excuses stop. The rationalizing stops. The minimizing goes away, and you just simply say to God, God, I did it. I'm going to own it. I'm going to take responsibility for the wrong that I've done. Now he goes on. Notice what he says next. So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Accountability is so important. Accountability is really just simply saying, if I've done something wrong, I'm ready to step up and take what belongs to it on the opposite side. Jesus once met a guy named Zacchaeus, short little guy who wanted to, to see him really badly, waiting up in a tree for him so they could see him. Jesus walked by and he said, Zacchaeus, I want to come over to your house today. Jesus went over. And Zacchaeus, through talking to Jesus, became convicted of the stealing that he was doing. And when he thought about it, he decided, you know what, I'm going to be accountable. And not only did he pay back what he had stolen, but he added on top of that because he said, this is only right that I not only give back what I've stolen, but even more to show that I'm truly sorry for what I've done and to really give back to these people what they deserve to have. That's being accountable. It's saying, what do I need to do to make this right? And it shuts down pride. 
It shuts down the pride of saying, I'm above sin. I don't have to pay for anything. I don't have to be accountable. Do you know how prevalent that is in our society today, in our world today? To, to think I can do whatever I please and no one should be able to hold me accountable. God's law will hold you accountable. Thirdly, notice what it says here. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. That's a myth, Paul says. Rather, what does the law do? Through the law, we become conscious. Conscious of our sins. Circle that word conscious. It raises our consciousness. It's interesting because Paul was writing to a congregation in the city of Rome. This church was was bicultural. It had a group of people who were Jews had a group of people that were Romans, kind of new to this whole Christianity thing. The, the Jews were a little bit new to it, but at least they had all the Old Testament background and they kind of knew God's word and so on. I think we could equate it today to someone that's been a, a Christ follower more or less since birth. And then someone who's just new coming into Christianity today. You know what Paul says to the whole group? He says, you're all alike under sin. There is no one righteous, not even one. And how important that is for us to know. So often, those of us who have been Christians for a long time can tend to look down on the new Christians and go, boy, I wish they'd get it. I wish they'd come along faster. I wish they'd, uh, I wish they'd grow up and get mature and really understand what this Christianity thing is, is all about. And we can kind of, you know, look down our noses at the newbies. And, and likewise, sometimes the newbies can, uh, can look down their nose at the, at the veterans. Why don't they have any passion for this anymore? They treat it like it's, it's really nothing. It's nothing all that great, like they've had it their whole life. And, oh, um, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. I've heard that so many times before. Don't they understand how exciting this is? To know that there's no more guilt or shame because of what Christ has done. And Paul steps back from all of that and he says, I don't care who you are. You're a Jew, you're a Gentile, you've been a Christian for your whole life, or you're just starting today. You're all alike under sin. Take a look in the mirror and get your consciousness raised. You know what the law does that's so beautiful? narrows down all the options, takes away all the doors, and leaves only one door to solve the problem of sin. Imagine that you're in a room, and and you hear an announcement in this room. In this room are 11 doors. Only one of them leads into heaven. Only one of them leads to God. He'll be standing behind it, ready to give you a big hug, carry you into eternal life. And all the doors are labeled, except for one. The first door says commandment number one. You're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Commandment two, honor God's name. Treat it with respect. Commandment three, worship God and honor his day of Sabbath. And so on down the line. And you start going down through those doors. And you open the, the first door and go, I know that if I, if I keep this first commandment, honor God above all things and love him and worship him with my, all my heart, I'll get into heaven. 
You open that first door and there's a, there's a brick wall with a mirror on it. And as you look into that mirror, you see yourself and it begins to play like a movie screen. All the incidences in your life where you failed to put God first and really worship and honor him with all your heart, your mind, your soul and strength. You go up, oh, close that door. Don't want to see any more of that movie. You move on to the second door. Honor God's name. You open that door, there's a brick wall. There's the mirror. You look at yourself, it starts to play all the scenes. The times that you've used God's name in vain. The times that you've, you've cursed and you've sworn. You've lied, saying, I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear by God, this is the truth. And you were lying through your teeth. Plays all those incidences to you. Even your little white lies. Not this door. You close it. You go right down the line. There's only one door left. And you open that door. Behind that door is not a wall. Behind that door is a scene of three crosses on a hill. And a garden with a tomb carved into solid face of rock. And, and the, the, the coin-shaped stone that normally covers it is rolled away. And you, you look at it and you go, yep. That's the way. That's the only way. That's the one way back to God. To find God's love. To know his forgiveness. To have eternal life. Is to, to rest my eyes on the cross and the empty tomb. God's law says you can't get there in any other way than to come to Jesus Christ. Notice what it says, verse 20. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now look at what it says right after that. And I put this in your crosswalk notes. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. To which the law and the prophets testify. There's another way. An 11th door. And it's the only door to go through, Paul says. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. You know what kind of love that is? The kind of love that even though it knows that you're going to be in pain momentarily, that it's going to hurt, but that you need to see what your true condition is. That's the kind of love that God has for you and for me. He loves you and me enough to show us our true condition as sinners and to close all those other doors and to say, stop rationalizing and minimizing. Be accountable. Be aware. Be conscious of the times when you miss the mark. And yes, it's painful, but it's important because all that pain ultimately leads to the solution called Jesus Christ. God loves me enough to show me my true condition. God's law is not just a mirror. Here's the last point. God's law, for those of us who have been transformed by the cross and the resurrection, is an awesome compass for our lives. Now that I know Jesus, now that I know his forgiveness, his love, now that I know that gift of eternal life, I say to myself, how do I thank God? 
How do I live a life of worship toward God? What does he want me to do? And in that sense, God says, look, here's my law as a compass. And God's law becomes not only a diagnostic instrument, it becomes a guidance instrument once I'm transformed by the cross and the resurrection. Take a look at your opening passage again. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Now, you've got the cross. You've got the empty tomb in view, Paul says. Now, I want you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Circle those words, living sacrifice. The very first thing that God's law does for us now that we're believers and now that we say, I want to live a life of glorifying God, is it shows us what to sacrifice. It shows us what to avoid in our life. You know, as you go through life, a major part of living the new life in Christ is, what do I need to get, get out of my life? What's the garbage in my life? What, what are the things that I have been doing that I need to start Avoiding. Have you ever been with someone who's addicted? Almost every treatment program will say the same thing. When you're done with your treatment, don't go back to your old neighborhood and start hanging out with your old friends and fall into your old patterns. Because if you think that you're strong enough to go back to your old neighborhood, hang out with your old friends who are doing drugs with you, and, and, a, and a, go back to the same pattern of life and not fall back into your addiction, you're blind. It will happen. And one of the biggest things about addiction treatment is to understand what, what do I have to sacrifice? What do I have to give up? What do I have to avoid in the future so that I don't fall back into this trap? And it's the same for sin. One of the first questions we as believers have to ask is, what do I need to shed from my life and avoid? What am I going to give up? What am I going to sacrifice? Notice he goes on and he says this. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Worship is really nothing more than saying, this is what God is worth to me. This is how much God truly matters to me. And that's what God's law also does. It says, live this way and you'll be worshiping. Your body will be a living sacrifice. You'll be saying every day, God is what truly matters. So God's law points us to what truly matters and the things that God wants to truly matter in our lives. He wants himself to truly matter, he says in the commandments. He wants his name to truly matter. He wants our time of worship to truly matter. He wants your parents to truly matter. He wants life to truly matter. He wants purity in your sexual relationships to truly matter. He wants people's property, other people's property, to matter to you. And he wants your, your heart and your mind and even your lips to matter. Don't gossip, he says. And he says, don't even covet. This tells us what truly matters to God and what needs to truly matter to us. And then it goes on and it says this. 
Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Circle that word transformed by the renewing of your mind. God shows us by his law how to change course, how to live a life that is transformational, transformed by God's power. And that results in something truly wonderful. Take a look at the last line. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Basically what he's saying there is, if you know God's law, and you're prepared to use it as the compass of your life, that's when you can begin to truly live the adventure. You can test and approve what God's will is. You ever been in that situation where you say, gee, I don't know what to do next. Should I move here or move there? Should I be in a relationship with this person or that person? I'm not sure what the future holds. Paul writes to the Romans and he says, your life is really a whole life of adventure and dipping your toe in and saying, is this what God wants? Making choices and then saying, all right, how am I going to live according to God's law and still move forward and trust that he's got nothing but blessing planned for me? And where does this come from? It all comes from God. Notice what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose, even the desire to use that compass and to use that mirror is God's gift to you. So here's our third point. God loves me enough to show me the right direction. As we go in the next nine weeks through the commandments, I'm going to be asking you again and again, are you ready? Are you ready to hold the mirror up? And I, I promise you, there are going to be Sundays where that's going to be painful. You're going to look at this commandment or that commandment, and it's going to bring back memories. It maybe even confront something that you're doing right here and now. And it's not going to be fun to feel that pain. But God wants you to live. He wants me to live an authentic, transparent, open life before him. And so he's going to hold that up. He's going to hold that mirror up, and he's going to say, look into it. No more self-deception. No more pride. No more self-flattery. No more explaining away sin. Here's you, a true picture of you. But we're also going to enjoy the fact that as we go through those commandments, we're going to learn how to use an amazing compass for our lives. An amazing tool that if we follow these commandments, we can go in the direction of adventure, testing and improving God's will, and finding amazing blessings. You know what the Bible promises about the person who doesn't sit in the seat of the ungodly? Read Psalm 1 when you go home today. And especially pay attention to this verse. It says, he will be like a tree planted by living uh, by living water. Whatever he does will prosper, the Bible tells us. When we use God's law as a compass, 
we're on an amazing adventure that leads to amazing blessings and leads us to live a life that gives glory to God, a life of true significance. So I want to invite you, come back. Let's go through these commandments together. Let's look in the mirror. Let's learn how to use the compass. Let's find out how to live the adventure of life with Jesus. Take a look at your next steps. I'm going to challenge you during these next 10 weeks to commit the Ten Commandments to memory by the end of this series. Now, some of you had confirmation class. Some of you you uh, guys that we were talking about before that were born into this, you went to class. You learned all the commandments and all the explanations. Okay, you who have that, you go back and you look at those explanations again. We'll be looking at them in the service. Commit them to memory. And then commit to using them daily as your mirror and compass. Secondly, nothing more important than this. Accept Christ's perfect fulfillment of all of God's law. Don't believe the myths. But understand that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled these commandments for you. He kept it all for you. By faith in him, you are now perfect in God's sight. Finally, meditate on and memorize Romans 3.20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, by observing the law, we become conscious of sin. Let's pray, and then we'll uh, join in uh, the, um, the Apostles' Creed together. Father in heaven, please allow us to use these amazing tools you've given us this amazing mirror and this amazing compass your law and help us to put them to use skillfully in our lives put your spirit in our hearts we believe that it is you and you alone that enables us both to will and to do what is according to your good pleasure and that is what we desire as we follow you lord to give you pleasure to honor you and to hold you up before the entire world especially your son jesus our savior we pray this in his name amen Thank you for listening to the Crosswalk Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at crosswalkphoenix.com.